Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Let's get straight into it. What case have you chosen for us today? Well, we're going to be inside a huge office building at a former U.S. Navy shipyard and ordnance manufacturing plant. We're talking about it today because it was the site of a terrible shooting by an employee. It was really once a major you know, working dock for the U.S. Navy, but that was back when the country was founded a couple hundred years ago. But today it's just a number of buildings identified by numbers, 197, 254, and it's really more of an administrative complex with about 18,000 workers in the building, but in the building that we're going to talk about today, about 3,000. So this incident occurred September 16th, 2013. At 8 o'clock in the morning, 34-year-old gentleman drove into the building and went inside armed with a sawed-off Remington shotgun. He stepped out of the men's bathroom on the fourth floor, and it was in the Navy Yard Building 197, relevant in terms of the numbers as our story goes on. Mm -hmm. He worked near the Anacostia River, and he really just simply walked down the hallway and started hunting for people to shoot. This was a person who worked in this building regularly, came to work prepared. He was using his regular access pass to get into the building, and he went to his office on the fourth floor. He went from there into the bathroom, came out of the fourth floor, and in the first four minutes, he killed eight people on the fourth floor. He went down a stairway and he killed two more on the third floor. So in six minutes, we had 10 people killed. It's so fast, isn't it? I think that's important for people to remember when you think about timing, right? So about 90 seconds after the shooting began, the first call was made to 911. Records show there was just a lot of confusion on the part of the dispatcher. And that confusion was primarily because the address of the building, they couldn't find the street. The person who called said that we're on this street, but the street name was not in their mapping system. We know other calls were made to 911 about shots fired. Radio channels across the city have crossover with different departments and different agencies. And so law enforcement first responders began coming to Building 197, including the FBI's, our National Capital Response Squad. So it was a full call out. And among the hundreds of MPD, that's what they call the Metropolitan Police Department, one of the commanding officers hears the call, he responds, he enters the building and he and another officer tell the armed security guard at the front door, stay here in the lobby, don't let him out of the building. And minutes later, that shooter who was on the third floor steps in behind the security guard, kills him and takes his hand gun. 
Yeah. So what happens then is he's on the first floor. There's law enforcement all over the place at that moment. He has the security officer's handgun and the first exchange of gunfire occurs right there in that hallway. One of the takeaways that really is important, most of these shootings, they are over in minutes. I think we've mentioned this before, but in 70% of the time, the shootings end in five minutes or less when we've been able to track the timing. So we know they end very fast. Even 35% of the time, half of those times, two minutes or less. So this is a completely different type of situation. But picture where we were. This is about a 260,000 square foot office building. It's really filled with cubicles and narrow hallways and a big atrium, so a very echoing atrium. And even though we did his most damage in the first six minutes, he hunted for another 17 minutes, continuing to look for more victims, in which he did, in fact, find two more. In one instance, though, because he was hunting, he raised his shotgun to a woman who was cowering against a wall. She crumpled down to her knees and sat down on the floor. He raised his shotgun to her head, clicked, and nothing went off. And so he just walked away and she crawled away to safety. I know there was another instance. Two people were standing outside the building. And when he took that service weapon from the security officer, he stepped back into the area where the stairwell goes upstairs and he popped out of one of the doors, like, you know, because it was an emergency exit. So he popped out that door briefly. He looked outside. He saw people down in the alley. He raised a handgun up, fired around, killed a man at the other end of it. Why were people not warned and evacuating at that stage? It's hard to know for sure. But in fact, you know, thousands left the building. There are 3,000 people there. Someone had pulled a fire alarm. Now, they may not have recognized in those first 15 or 20 minutes that this was not a fire. This was a shooting. So there was no overhead announcement. There were no text messages. You know, one of the lessons here is get as far away from the building as you can. You know, you can always be home and be safe and call back and tell your boss where you are. We don't want you running to an evacuation zone that's right nearby where you could still be at risk. And sometimes people uh, suggest, oh, when we leave a building in a desperate situation, we should just go to a rallying point. No, don't go to a rallying point. Just get away from the scene. That's a really interesting point because presumably it is a situation full of chaos and then you add in that addition of a fire alarm going off and you wouldn't know how to differentiate between a fire and something worse. You mentioned that the size of the building was 260,000 square feet, which is a pretty large area to navigate through to get to the killer. So how long does that take? So this shooter was in the building for 70 minutes, more than an hour before law enforcement was able to find him and, in fact, in their third firefight, shoot him and take him down. During that time, after we got past the first 25 minutes, really the hunter became the hunted. There were actually, at one point, 117 law enforcement officers in the building looking for him, which was really dangerous, right? But we know when it was over, there were 12 people killed, seven others wounded, including two police officers who were wounded in some of those exchanges of firefights. You said earlier that it was a challenge to get to the right building. So why was it so hard for the 911 dispatchers to get the right coordinates or the address? Well, in this case, law enforcement really faced a multitude of problems. Maybe I shouldn't say it quite so dramatically, but it seemed like a multitude of problems right from the start. First, the street names, even though they were right in the city, Washington, D.C., the street names were not in the automated system, what we call a CAD system, because they were on a military base. And I point this out because this is not uncommon around the country. In many locations, law enforcement may have all of the grids patterns down, 
for the big street and the side streets and the residential streets for the ambulances and fire department to respond to. But they don't necessarily have the street names that are little intricate streets that might be on college campuses or big industrial sites where you have several buildings and all those industrial sites have little internal roads. And that's the first thing. What happened is the 911 operator said, I don't have that street name. It must be a different name. And the person on the phone said, no, this is the name. Can you imagine calling in somebody's shooting and you can't get 911 to believe the name of the street? And it wasn't any malice on the part of the dispatchers, right? But the Navy Yard itself is about, it's about a half a square mile. But, you know, we do see these in universities, military bases, a lot of buildings. They have names and numbers attached to them, but no one really pays attention to them. Honestly, if you went to university, you know, what room and building number and name was your philosophy class in? I don't know. I don't know what street that building was on. I just walked there as a student, right? So this is another lesson. No matter where you are, buildings need to have addresses on them that people can repeat. They need to be in the city system for emergency response. The addresses need to be posted inside of rooms, not just on the front of a building. Because if you're stuck in a room, how do you know for sure what street you're on and what your building number is and what your room number is? It's such a simple thing to identify the buildings in the rooms internally. So it's another great learning lesson. So we were trying to get people to the building, in addition to that, just because of the frustration. Imagine military personnel have it in their standard protocol that they would lock the base down in in an emergency. So the exterior gates to the base were locked and the emergency personnel couldn't get into the base because they were responding from outside. That's a whole lot of mess. So another thing that I know they did at the FBI, they've done it in other locations, is most uh, office locations actually have hard lines, right? Telephones, hard lines. And right on the telephone, a lot of places will put a sticker and it says, this is the office number, this is the location, this is the address. And you can fill it in. You can actually fill in like your actual office number at the bottom of it. So here's the building name, here's the street address, here's the emergency number, here's the floor that you're on, here's the room that you're in. When you're panicked, It's really hard to spit all that information out. Imagine doing it under a panic situation with hearing gunshots behind you. I mean, that's an easy thing to do. If you're in an office right now, look down at your phone and get a sticker on there immediately. Yeah, it's Um, simple. And I want to point out, too, that when I worked on the research with my team on where these active shooters, we call half of all the shootings occurred in places of business. Businesses are the most vulnerable. And it's really important that they appreciate that. And that's really why I chose this, because it should give pause to anybody working in an office building or owning an office building. How careful have you been to think through the simple things that can be done for free? Simple things for free, like making sure people can identify where they are. I also wanted to mention the fire alarm. Someone pulled a fire alarm in this building, and I get asked all the time, should we pull a fire alarm in the, if there's a shooting to empty the building? Some people are vehemently on the side of, don't pull a fire alarm. You're going to send people into the hallway, so the shooter's going to get to them. Some people are vehemently on the side of, pull the fire alarm, you empty the building, and everybody goes away. So what do you think the answer to that is? I don't know. I mean, it's chaos, isn't it, regardless? So you tell me. You, you gave the right answer. I don't know. That's the right mm-hmm. answer. Because we don't know. We don't have any data to tell us. We know it's more confusing. I can tell you at the Navy Yard, the law enforcement officers, the first responders couldn't necessarily hear each other talking on the radio because there was a very loud fire alarm going off in their ears. And we've seen that before. That's where it's important to have fire officials on scene to get in and get those alarms shut down so that we don't have to hear them. But that's really important. And I'm going to tell you that we just don't have data on it. Uh, I love the idea of clearing the building. 
especially in a case like this where we have a cold-blooded murderer who is just willing to hunt the building until he runs out of ammunition. Well, that's a very cheery thought. Thanks for that. Sorry. So you did say there were two things that came to mind that should give us pause. So what was the second one? Oh, this is another frustrating situation that we learned after the fact. This entire building had a security surveillance system in it. And so there were cameras in the hallways, cameras in the corridors where the elevators were, cameras in the stairwells. And in the 70 minutes we were looking for a shooter, we never saw any of that surveillance video. If we had been able to view it live, we likely would have been able to have isolated him much sooner and gone in also to look for wounded. If we knew he was on, say, the fifth floor and there was a wounded person on the first floor, we'd be able to know it was safe to go in there. So you're flying blind, basically. And presumably that's why there's such a long period without gunfire. I think you said 47 minutes of just playing cat and mouse. So why wasn't that surveillance footage available and and shareable? Well, again, it's one of those things where people uh, might think this was somebody who dropped the ball. But in fact, no, this was protocol. The Navy Yard person working in that building assigned to do surveillance, the task was if there is a fire alarm, Exit the room, secure the door, and flee just like you would for a fire. So that person followed directions exactly the way they were written, which is why it's important to think through things before you make a decision. If that person had been assigned to go to tell law enforcement, here's what I did. I locked it down, but this is the room uh, where the surveillance cameras are. Whether it was a shooting or a knifing or whether it was even a fire, You know, it may have been a situation where the fire alarm went off because the fire was on the roof and that would have helped uh, firefighters, right? They would have been able to look at the surveillance cameras and see whether or not there was fire, whether there were people who were looking to need to rescue. Uh, They just didn't have access to any of that. So it was protocol. It's something I've never thought about before. Of course, the surveillance person is going to get the hell out of Dodge as well because you're hearing a fire alarm. It's what you've got to do. But is there no way once you leave a security room to actually access the feed? I mean, we live in a world of you know, technology. Can you not access that from outside the building? Well, you can, but you have to have it set up, right? And I think there absolutely are places that have uh, surveillance set up that way. You can imagine, I've been at uh, some of our major amusement parks in the United States, and I can tell you that the security feeds to the amusement parks go back to some other locations that I've been in and visited. And you can see what's going on in this state over in that state. And that's a good thing. That's what we want to do, but you have to have it set up. And None of these surveillance uh, systems were set up that way, which kind of begs the question, why were they set up, right? Yeah. They're not designed to do emergency prevention. They're just designed for us to look at the camera work afterwards as evidence of whatever, you know, crime we might want to prove. So they, they have this additional opportunity to use their surveillance footage as a prevention effort, but I don't think that's done very often. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. 
a production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. I mentioned before there were 117 law enforcement officers who came into the building. That was a really untenable number of people, a lot of risk to law enforcement. I think the lesson to the public here were, man, you got to know where you are. There's nothing wrong with knowing where you are. If you walk down for groceries, do you walk or you drive? And do you know the roads all the way along the way? I am famously street name blind and very bad at directions. So... Yeah, I'd honestly be stuffed. Yeah, that's a very common reaction. Very mm-hmm. common. And then when you add panic to it, you just can't do that. So I have a five-mile hike that I walk around my neighborhood, and I, I can hardly tell you any of the roads. So if I trip and, and fell and busted my ankle, I, I don't know how I'd tell the 911 operator where I am. Well, that's our challenge for this week. You and I, we're going to be in our walks, and if people pass us, they're going to be wondering why we're muttering names under our breath. I also wanted to point out here one more tidbit to remember, because I was just having a conversation with somebody who was asking me about when do I take off. The shooter in this case returned to one location where somebody had hunkered down 20 minutes later looking for another opportunity to shoot somebody. And Uh, did they get that opportunity? No, they did not. He stayed hunkered down and and he was safe, which is great, right? But sometimes people say, should I leave? I remember once when we were doing one of our earlier episodes, you said, when do you go? How long should you stay locked down? And I said, if you're safe, stay as long as you want. And Sandy Hook, there were people who stayed three hours and people might complain, oh my gosh, three hours, no water, no bathrooms. Three hours, you're safe, you're alive. So if you would rather stay and you think you're in a safe position, stay there. Law enforcement's going to find you because law enforcement's job even after they think they might have the shooter neutralized, stopped, arrested, whatever, their job is to clear every single room, every single closet in a building. What do you mean hunkered down? Are you talking like he was locked in a room or he had a barrier up between him? 
What does that he look like? He was locked in a room and he had barricaded himself inside the room, meaning okay. he had pushed a cabinet over and a desk over so that it was too difficult for the shooter to get back inside. Right. And I think that's the difference between what we said in the San Isidro McDonald's shooting. People did hunker down. They just actually hid behind the tables and that wasn't enough. Right. In law enforcement, we call it cover and concealment. And concealment means you're hiding from somebody. For instance, you're concealed behind a piece of wallboard. No one can see you. But bullets rounds go right through wallboard. So you're not really covered. In order to be concealed and covered, you want to be someplace where the rounds can't go through the wall or penetrate as easily. We know shooters have many times shot at doors and that some of those rounds go through doors and some don't. But if there's other pieces of furniture and things in between in front of that door, there's less likelihood that those rounds are going to come into the room where you are. That reminds me of something I read in your amazing book. You said that bullets can travel along the ground, so don't be on the ground. I think it's very common for people not to realize that a bullet that hits a ground and it is going to skip along the ground, bullets can travel very far. I have a 250-foot driveway. If I fire my handgun onto my driveway at the top of the driveway and the bullet hits the ground, it's going to continue to skid down the driveway until something stops it or it runs out of energy. And so in a situation where it's an office or it's a hallway, getting down on the floor actually gives more surface for people to get hit with bullets. So it's better that you run down the hallway or junk out of some place, a window or whatever, which we have places where people have done that. And so knowing that bullets keep moving, you can't outrun a bullet, but you can absolutely not give it a bigger target. And so don't clunker down on the floor and think you're safer there. You're just not, especially when everybody can see What can you tell us about this killer? Well, this is a complicated situation. The surveillance video uh, that I viewed for this particular shooting at the Navy Yard was just very unnerving. You can't unwatch somebody dying. And I've seen a lot of footage of people dying. And so I do get kind of angry, you know. So this killer was born in New York City. He spent about five years in the U.S. Navy before he was honorably discharged. I'm going to put a little asterisk next to that honorably discharged and explain why. He held a variety of odd jobs. He was a little bit nomadic, I would say. At one point, I know he was hired to do IT work, and he was pretty much doing that as a contractor at the time of the shooting. He had had some legal skirmishes, including shooting out the tires of a car in a raging bout of anger that he couldn't explain later. This was not his first offense, firing a gun at something and causing property damage. His father said that he felt that his son was dealing with PTSD because he had helped people during 9-11 up in New York when uh, planes hit the towers in New York City. While he was in the Navy, he was discharged around and after the time that he discharged a firearm into the ceiling of the place where he was so he was eventually discharged honorably, but perhaps maybe a forced discharge, right? He was never charged, however, and the military conceded later that his temper and the incidents together were probably a red flag that they didn't see. So I'm giving you a little little free one there. Heads up. Yeah, exactly. Even though the incidents were not necessarily related. So interestingly, after this time, he joined a Buddhist temple. He was a practicing Buddhist for a number of years, a religion that in their modern version of Buddhism, I think that the Buddhists would say is stress is nonviolence. He lived in Seattle 
for a while, but he moved to Virginia, actually, to go work in Washington five months before the shooting to take this job. At the time, I think he probably knew something was wrong in his own mind. I'm going to use that vague term. A couple of months before the shooting, he sought psychological care at two different Veterans Administration facilities. He was having trouble sleeping. He was given sleeping medications. He told police at one point that he was hearing voices. He said the government was sending microwaves through his head. Some people interviewed afterwards said he had a drinking problem. Some of the medications that he was taking exacerbated anger and temper. If he was angry, the medications and the drinking on top of it increased the anger. One of his roommates said he complained about being discriminated against, presumably, I I guess, because he was black. His employer began to see him disintegrate in August. They phoned a hotel where he was staying. He said he wasn't sleeping and he was taking these sleeping medications that had been prescribed to him. But they actually called the hotel and said he was going to be checking out because he was going to be removed. And in the weeks before he moved from hotel to hotel, apparently trying to get away from the voices that he was hearing. And he spoke to many different people about that. I mentioned he was a Buddhist. He went to a Buddhist temple in Massachusetts and said, can I stay here because I can't stay in my hotel because I'm hearing voices there. That was around the time where employer called and said, we're going to cancel the hotel. We're going to bring him back. But that information was never passed along to people in the right way who handled access to the Navy Yard building. And a few weeks later, he checked into a new hotel September 7th. He came to work on September 16th. He brought a shotgun that he'd bought two days earlier and passed the government background check when he bought that shotgun, and then the shooting occurred. There's a lot in there. Sounds like an individual that is going to be in need of some serious mental health assistance. Now, you introduced me to the term leakage in the episode, again, we did on Santa Sea during McDonald's shooting, and the concept that killers often leak information to people in their lives prior to committing an act of violence. In this case, I would say it was almost like a burst dam because he was telling so many different people that he had voices in his head for one. So by my count, he's told the Veterans Association, the police, those people in the Buddhist temple and his employers that he was all hearing voices. So I would think that they were all moments that somebody could have said something. And then was it fair to say that being fired may have just been the last straw that pushed him over the edge? It could have been. Where he went into the building with access, right? So he still had his pass. He hadn't been told, you're fired, don't go to work. But his employer was probably in the process of doing some of that. That is what we would call a triggering, not a behavior of concern, but a triggering factor. So sometimes when people say, oh, he snapped, they don't snap. Nobody snaps because they have all this planning and preparation ahead of time. But there can be a triggering behavior. And sometimes those triggering situations are firings or the kind of last straw People put these rocks in their backpack of grievances. And so what might be minor to you or me triggers this whole fountain of anger and frustration. And we've seen it the opposite way. For instance, I know a school shooting situation once where a school shooter who did shoot said, I was going to do this on Monday, but I didn't. And, oh, okay, why did you do it on Wednesday? Well, I came to school on Monday, but the principal said hello to me when I came in. And so I was really happy the principal said hello to me and I decided today is not the day. So much both ways. Simple acts of kindness. Let's keep putting those into our days. The Navy had discharged him, even though he had red flags. 
And then he passed a background check to get a gun. Now, if the Navy had not honorably discharged him, would he still have been able to get that weapon? If you have something on your background that indicates, and that would be an indication that he, you know, is mischarging guns, they'd look at it and it probably would have come in as a flag and he probably would not have been able to access a gun, at least legally. And most shootings occur with legally obtained weapons. So that's definitely true. What are those hard lessons that we learned from the Navy Yard shooting? Well, something that really I think is a very hard lesson. I watched one person be killed waiting for an elevator. There were two people waiting for the elevator. They pushed, pushed, pushed the button. The elevator door opened. One of them was able to get into the elevator and the other one was shot in the back and died on the floor. So it's a hard lesson and a very graphic lesson, but don't wait for elevators. You know, just hit the stairs. And I guess I would also say if you're in the situation, you know, be prepared to fight. Be angry. This person is willing to take your life. Let that be your motivation to go back at them. Our research uh, at the FBI shows that unarmed civilians are more likely to end a shooting than an armed civilian. So in more than 10% of the cases that we researched when I was at the FBI, an unarmed civilian stopped the shooter who was armed. You know, occasionally you can get somebody like a a school teacher, maybe who can talk a 12 year old into setting a gun down. That's very risky. I've seen teachers killed because they tried to talk a person into putting a gun down. But I've also seen university students grab a shotgun and hold on to it and just shake it and shake it and shake it. And then other people join in and suddenly the shooter is out of commission. Something that probably not a lot of people think about or heard about, but there was a very resourceful group who was fleeing because one of them was shot in a stairway. They fled up to the rooftop of the building. They wrote a note on a piece of paper telling law enforcement they were down below, threw the piece of paper like a paper airplane over the side of the building. And in the midst of all of this chaos, a police officer found that sheet of paper, picked it up, and they sent a helicopter to pick all those people up from the rooftop. No way. Hold on. How tall is the building? I, you know, I don't know if it's the six floors or seven, but yeah, it's, it's kind of what? up in that, in that category. But that's some hella good, like, airplane making skills that, that somebody's exactly. got there. Were they yelling down to the person saying, hey, I'm sending down this? Or no, it was just no, chance. No, it was too much chaos. They just sent it over the side and hoped that somebody would find it. And I think they saw the police officers and they threw it and they were hoping they would see it. That is incredible. Wow. It's a good um, story, though. Oh, unbelievable. Chaos reigns in any type of a violent situation, just like it, it does in a violent hurricane, tsunami, earthquake. Chaos reigns. And so you really have to be your own champion. You have to be the one who takes charge of everything, right? Be angrier than the shooter. Be angrier than the person who's got the knife because you're the best person to keep you alive. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. 
But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime event, returns to London on the 21st and 22nd of September 2024. CrimeCon UK is the world's leading true crime event and is partnered by True Crime, the expert-led channel available on your platform of choice. From fascinating sessions with some of the biggest names in true crime to raising a glass with your favourite podcasters, CrimeCon UK is an unforgettable way for you to really immerse yourself into the true crime community. I will be there with my co-host Catherine Schweit from Stop the Killing. So come and join us and don't forget to quote Ferris for your special 10% discount. Head to crimecon.co.uk to book your tickets today. And that discount code again, Ferris as in my last name. Ferris like the wheel, Ferris like Bueller, whatever way you choose to remember it. Don't forget to put it in and you'll get 10% off. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who have overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave.